It's the Mark Stein Show. weekend of the Trump administration. That is a fact. There are not a lot of facts these days, but that is one of them. An unprecedented president is about to be turned into an unprecedented ex-president. In fact, it's already underway. I was on the air for three hours as America's grotesque perversion of a functioning national legislature re-impeached President Trump. I did a lot of commentary on that and related matters on radio and TV this week, and I don't have a lot to add except one thing. Do you remember the way cancel culture, so-called, used to be just six months ago? We even had a theme song for it. Let's wind the clock back to summer 2020. From my hill to die on to yours. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-yay. My, oh my, what's been cancelled today? Plenty of old stuff and all of the fun. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-done, Mr. Black Lives on my rear end. It's the truth, I'm guilty, riddled with my white fragility. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-ay. I got a feeling today's my last day. That's how it was just a few months back. You got cancelled because you were perceived to be in transgression of some or other noble cause. Racism, transgender rights, Native American reclamation of cultural appropriation. So the reason I sang zippity doo is because the film from which it comes, Song of the South, had been cancelled uh, by Disney, uh, as all kinds of other things were being cancelled back then. Gone with the Wind, Kate Smith, the Washington Redskins, the Tomahawk Chop, Stephen Foster, Little Britain, the German episode of Faulty Towers. I stood against all the cultural vandalism, where a third-rate culture that can no longer create anything, not just symphonies or oil paintings or handsome public buildings, the difficult stuff... But none of the vernacular middlebrow arts either, like sitcoms or pop songs or even sports team nicknames. So instead, our commissars level the past to bring it down to the woeful state of the present. Nevertheless, it's possible to argue, as their proponents do, that this is necessary to accommodate changing social mores on race, sexual identity and so forth. It's not a good faith argument. When a rerun channel gets bullied into dropping Dukes of Hazard because the show contains an automobile with a decal of a Confederate flag on the roof, that's not really about social mores, uh, but an exercise in sheer muscle. Um, that said, it can be presented, presented at least, as something loftier and purer-minded. Not anymore. 
Uh, Cancel culture has evolved in recent weeks. It's no longer about transgressing against such noble concepts as diversity and multiculturalism. It's now explicitly about eliminating persons who, in a two-party system, support the other party. For example, two Pennsylvania school teachers are under investigation by their school boards because they went to Washington last week to support President Trump. They didn't storm the Capitol. They were nowhere near that. But they're under investigation in essence because they attended a pro-Trump rally. My friend, the slayer of Michael Mann's hockey stick, Steve McIntyre, tweets, It seems characteristic of U.S. law enforcement that serious agitators like this guy, and he shows a picture of one such serious agitator, have not been placed on wanted lists... Uh, while charging non-violent protesters who entered into capital after police let them in, unquote. Steve's right about that. If there's video of you with the Capitol Police officer holding the door to let you into the building, you'll be charged by this dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt Department of Justice and the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt FBI to modify the famous slogan of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the DOJ and FBI are pathologically incapable of getting their man. Uh, so they'll get you instead, because frankly, it's a lot easier. And if you doubt me, how's that Durham report coming along? Ooh, the Durham report! Any day now! Oh, we're supposed to be excited about the release of the uh, Russian investigation documents, are we? Eh... A, there's nothing in there about Stefan Halper, Christopher Steele, I didn't already know. And B, why wouldn't they release it now? Trump's gone. Mission accomplished. Professor Jonathan Turley finds some of these documents, quote, troubling. Well, for the last five years, nobody who matters has been troubled by them, and they're not going to be troubled by them now. But Trump is still out there. He's still out there. For example, you might be rejoicing that the orange Hitler has been turfed from his bunker and then accidentally click over from MSNBC to the movie channel. Uh-oh. Excuse me, where's the lobby? Down the hall and to the left. Thanks. Macaulay Culkin and Donald Trump in the lobby of the Plaza Hotel in the film Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Young Master Culkin who looks pretty horrendous these days, is now among the many demanding that that cameo be excised from all prints of Home Alone 2. The president is now learning what a lot of predecessors have learned, that the price for making it big in right-wing world is that you're never allowed back in the wider world ever again. Rush can tell you all about that. He is the number one radio show in America. But if he ever takes a step into the outside world by, say, getting a gig on ESPN or Monday Night Football or by being part of a consortium seeking to buy a, an uh, NFL franchise, the enforcers step in in nothing flat to shut it down. And now it's happening to Trump and even to Trump supporters. No, sorry, for anything other than right-wing politics, you're home alone too, now and forever. The left has got it figured out. Let the right have their ghetto, but keep them out of everything else. Keep them out ever more totally from the broader cultural landscape. And the right itself goes along with it. Every time I go on Tucker, I get emails and tweets and the like saying, Fox News is dead to me, Stein, so that means you're dead to me too, Stein. Because you went on Fox. 
OK, I don't quite see why it's in the right's interest to kill Fox. Hey, uh, let's make the ghetto smaller. We're excluded from 97% of American culture and media, but with a bit of effort, we can easily make that, ooh, 98, 99%. Uh-huh. That seems likely to work. I'm not into purity tests, into making your 80% ally a 20% enemy, as Ronald Reagan put it, but purity tests when you're being shut out of everything and everywhere are particularly idiotic and self-defeating, because that's exactly the time when all factions should be throwing punches and thrashing out the road ahead. Because after the last couple of months, uh, whatever happens in the coming year, the American right is going to need something different, something new. And it's not going to get that by enforcing purity tests. Uh, now to the biggest story of the week. The all-time record long-distance flight recorded by a pigeon. Uh, it started in Arras, France, back in 1931. And the pigeon landed 7,200 miles later in Saigon. That's in Vietnam. As I said, 1931. Joe the Pigeon, apparently named after Joe Biden would appear to have beaten that record. He's up somewhere over 8,000 miles. And even if he uh, hasn't beaten the record, he's travelled a lot further than his namesake uh, ever does from that Delaware basement. Joe the Pigeon took off from Oregon and he flew a long way. But he had the misfortune to come down in Melbourne, Victoria. Melbourne is perhaps the most locked-down city in the Western world, as you'll know if you follow our Vic Wanker Copper feature. Uh, the Victorian authorities think nothing about clobbering pregnant women and little old spinsters in their attempts to enforce their anti-COVID regime. So a pigeon from Oregon bringing all that Trumpian coronavirus into their pristine land isn't going to last long on the ground in Victoria. Uh, the Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment announced their intention to kill him, uh, which, to the best of my knowledge, they don't do even to all those pregnant women they beat up. Anyway, the pigeon, unlike almost anybody else the Australian authorities fix on, uh, attracted the sympathy of the world's press. So, Her Majesty's acting Antipodean Prime Minister, Michael McCormack. I'm not aware of Joe's plight or flight, or future. Um, happy to look into it and get back to you. Good luck, Joe. Oh, the PM sounds almost as generous as Doc Fauci when he was saying that he'd gone to the North Pole to administer the COVID vaccine to Santa so that he'd be able to be lawfully admitted to the United States to deliver all the presents. Ah, but what if this pigeon is, unlike Santa, non-compliant? Here again is acting Prime Minister demonstrating his acting range, Michael McCormack. But if Joe has come uh, in, in a way that uh, has not uh, met our strict biosecurity measures, then uh, bad luck, Joe. Either fly home or face the consequences. The Australian Prime Minister doing a one-man good cop, bad cop act there. Anyway, the story's all fallen apart since then. Uh, the good news is that the Governor-General will not be dining on pigeon pie at Yarralumla. The bad news is Joe the Pigeon could easily fly on to Britain 
and pick up that post-Brexit COVID-related super-mega-hyper-gonorrhea. And then where will we all be? What better way to escape from a world of censorship, surveillance, and big government than by delving into a novel about, well, censorship, surveillance, and big government? Mark Stein's latest tale is as timely as ever. Tune into Stein Online nightly as Mark reads George Orwell's dystopic 1984. Tales for Our Time are available exclusively to members of the Mark Stein Club. Listen to the latest tale and all the previous ones by going to www.steinonline.com. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Here's a poem by Shelley, a couplet of which popped into my head as I was watching a TV news story about a couple of gym owners in New Jersey currently in a legal battle with the state over reopening their business. The state just cleaned out their bank account electronically, uh, which is a bit of a problem, as that leaves them unable to afford legal representation for their battle with the state. Uh, And this is the couplet that swam up from some half-remembered schoolroom lesson. Those ungrateful drones who would drain your sweat, nay, drink your blood. The great divide in many Western jurisdictions now, California is a very good example, uh, is between those who, in H.G. Wells's phrase from the time machine, keep things going, uh, the unglamorous types doing unglamorous work, and the political class and the media and the celebrities and big tech and the permanent bureaucracy ranged against them. And it seems to me somewhere along the way in this grim year, perhaps during the eight months It took the United States Congress to negotiate a $600 handout for people forbidden by the state to go to work, that we have crossed a line and that our rulers have moved from draining our sweat, in other words, uh, living off the fruits of our labors, uh, to drinking our blood. In California, the middle class, the people who keep things going, are fleeing. The problem is, Uh, There's fewer and fewer places to flee to. But when you look at that lousy 5,593-page COVID relief bill, uh, the one with one and a half pages of COVID relief and 5,591 pages of giveaways to those who are better connected, uh, it's hard to see why the people who keep things going would want to keep things going. For people who give the impression ever more openly of being entirely happy to drink your blood. Shelley was a great lyric poet who was also a political radical, and he wrote this poem in, uh, by comparison with the rest of his work, in uh, a very unpoetical way. It's very direct, very simple. Uh, It's mostly a series of questions that are variations of the same question to his audience. Why keep things going? Obviously, his circumstances two centuries ago are not ours. The rich robes he refers to are these days made in China, and Western citizens work mainly in service jobs, whooshing macchiatos, or in attendant paperwork industries, uh, such as uh, accounting. But the 
central question remains. Uh, sharpened by a year of total state power and the ruination of millions of small businesses built up over decades. By Percy Bysshe Shelley, a song to the men of England. Men of England, wherefore plough for the lords who lay ye low? Wherefore weave with toil and care the rich robes your tyrants wear? Wherefore feed and clothe and save from the cradle to the grave those ungrateful drones who would drain your sweat, nay, drink your blood? Wherefore bees of England forge many a weapon, chain and scourge that these stingless drones may spoil the forced produce of your toil. Have ye leisure, comfort, calm, shelter, food, love's gentle balm? Or what is it ye buy so dear, with your pain and with your fear? The seed ye sow another reaps, the wealth ye find another keeps, the robes ye weave another wears, the arms ye forge another bears. So seed, but let no tyrant reap. Find wealth, let no impostor heap. Weave robes, let not the idle wear. Forge arms in your defence to bear. Shrink to your cellars, holes and cells. In hall ye deck, another dwells. Why shake the chains ye wrought? Ye see the steel ye tempered. Glance on ye. With plough and spade and hoe and loom, trace your grave and build your tomb and weave your winding sheet till fair England be your sepulchre. A poem from me to you by Percy Bysshe Shelley. A song to the men of England. You can find it in the collected poetical works his widow Mary Shelley published in 1839, 17 years after her young husband's death in a boating accident. Mrs Shelley, of course, was the author of Frankenstein. And for something of the backstory of Frankenstein, check out my introduction to one of our uh, Halloween tales for our time from a couple of months back, The Vampire. Uh, and as I mentioned that H.G. Wells line about how things are kept going, I should also remind you that another of our tales for our time is that great Wells classic of the Eloy and the Morlocks, The Time Machine. You can find them all at our Tales for Our Time homepage. <laughs> Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Patrick Archer, a first weekend founding member of the Mark Stein Club from Texas, writes, Mark, you're probably the smartest person I know of. Rush, Steve Bannon, Tucker and others are smart people too, but I think you're all are wrong in ruling out the use of violence. 
The left uses violence as it suits them. You and others think rationality and truth works with the left, but it doesn't. The thought leaders are evil and the thralls are not especially intelligent. Has there ever been a great issue ever resolved through non-violence? The American Revolution, slavery, what is the strategy for the spread of Islam and communism? It seems that disavowing all recourse to violence is tantamount to sending up the white flag of surrender. Everyone on talk radio is saying non-violence is the way to go. It sounds rather pusillanimous. Uh, well, Patrick, everyone on talk radio uh, may be saying non-violence is the way to go because of what that, uh, you know, whatever he was, the deputy assistant under senior vice president for paperwork, at whatever radio network it was, said that he would uh, said that he would fire hosts if he didn't say that, and um, or if they said if they questioned election fraud, and I did question election fraud, and uh, said that uh, on Russia's show that if we heard within the next fifteen seconds Celine Dion uh, playing singing the theme from Titanic, you'd know that they'd pulled the plug. Uh, that's but that's why those permanent hosts are saying that kind of talk. Um, I think you're referring to something I said, uh, what was it, late in the first hour or something? And basically what I, as I put it on the radio, I, I said I'd, I I don't think I'd be in the line I'm in if I thought political violence was the answer. Um, so in that sense, I was speaking for myself. I have no desire to run through the streets after dark, lobbing concrete through windows or whatever, and I don't think I'd be terribly good at it. It's a young man's game. I have said, and I think this is the crucial point, that a state that is incapable of holding fair elections is removing the principal moral objection to political violence, a polity that can't hold a fair election, as I said, a day or two after it, is nullifying your citizenship. But it's also uh, extinguishing the bargain that stays political violence, uh, which is that your side gets a fair shot, and if it doesn't persuade enough voters come the day, uh, then next election day it will have another fair shot. And if it's more persuasive, well, maybe this time there will be sufficient voters. To put it at its mildest... Uh, that's not what the Democrats and the legislatures and the courts and the ballot clerks are promising in America. So they have extinguished uh, the bargain that stays political violence. That said, uh, what I think is a total waste of time is ineffective political violence, such as that of January the 6th. Uh, because if that was political violence by the right, its only benefits have accrued to the left. Um, so if you think the antidote to uh, talk radio or Fox News or whatever is some guy with Viking horns uh, sitting in Nancy Pelosi's chair, I don't think that's going anywhere. So the question, uh, the broader question you ask is whether political violence is both effective and necessary. You say, has there ever been a great issue ever resolved through nonviolence? Uh, the American Revolution, slavery, what is the strategy for the spread of Islam and communism? Well, setting that last one aside, because I've written fairly extensively about that over the, over the last 20 years, 
Uh, slavery was ended in the British Empire through public debate, legislation and enforcement of that legislation by the Royal Navy. Um, the American Revolution again. There are 54 independent nation states today that are members of the Commonwealth. So clearly it's possible to rid oneself of rule from London without violent uprising. Belize did, Swaziland did, Mauritius did. There are exceptions to that, the Mau Mau uh, rebellion in Kenya, but they're really very few, remarkably few. So uh, I appreciate that I'm, I'm talking in a non-American context here, but as I said explicitly with those two examples you proposed, uh, mass violence was not necessary to end slavery in the British Empire or for the independence of colonial territories in the British Empire. The other reason I'd caution against violence is that and this is a practical one, is that the license extended to BLM and Antifa violence derives from their claim to speak for approved classes of person. The entirely different reaction to January 6th by the Department of Justice, the FBI, the National Guard. A New York Times editor had to resign for running a piece suggesting uh, that the president had the right to send out the National Guard to prevent violence. Um, that's all forgotten now. The entirely different reaction to January the 6th by all these powerful government agencies is a preview of how any serious violence from the right will be met. It's going to be like Waco and Ruby Ridge three times a week. It's also worth bearing in mind the advantages, and this again is an important point, that technology and the modern surveillance state give the authorities. To go back to uh, your example, um, if you recall those gym owners in New Jersey who had their bank accounts cleaned out by the state. Imagine if London had been able to do that to, say, the organisers of the Boston Tea Party just by pressing a button in Westminster. Uh, you can uh, clean out the organisers of the Boston Tea Party or the Minutemen or whoever it is or close down uh, their website, as GoDaddy just did to AR15.com, which is one of the biggest uh, Second Amendment uh, sites on the Internet. Or Apple, Google and Amazon just did to Parler. As my uh, serialization of 1984 every evening right here makes plain the panopticon state enables a level of government control that George III could never have imagined and wouldn't have wanted even if he could. And that has implications for political violence and indeed for uh, the form of state violence that we know as war. America has so-called boots on the ground in over 100 countries and big bloated there-she-blows carrier groups floating around every pissy knee-deep lagoon on the planet. And yet it's China that has become the dominant global power without firing a shot in the geopolitical sense. Um, obviously closer to home, there are shots fired against Hong Kongers and Uyghurs, and there will be against Taiwan. Uh, but geopolitically, they have established control of the world through intellectual property theft, financial muscle, uh, and to their credit, an understanding of how to deploy all levers of national power, not just military shock and awe for 48 hours, followed by two 
decades of ineffectual dithering. Um, so we live in an age of subtler mechanisms of control that are operated uh, more subtly. And it's not clear to me that uh, political violence on the right in such an age would necessarily be that efficient. Political violence on the left works for them not because of its efficacy, but because the perpetrators are indulged by everyone who matters, from politicians to news anchors, school teachers to hipster corporations. There will be no such indulgence of right-wing violence, not least by police chiefs who take the knee to BLM, uh, and by a military whose general staff is ever more woke. You know, that's my theory, but I have a feeling we're about to see it in practice in the next couple of years, because, of course, uh, a polity that cannot hold fair elections should command no respect from the citizenry. And as the late Pat Cadell used to say to me a decade ago in Fox News green rooms, if you tell people over and over and over that there is no peaceful way they can change the course of their government, the direction of their society, you are setting up pre-revolutionary conditions. So whether I'm pusillanimous or not, uh, I think we're about to get a lesson in the efficacy of political violence uh, in the years ahead, and very quickly. And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week. This time last week, we were paying tribute to Jeff Stevens, who wrote Winchester Cathedral, and there's a kind of hush all over the world tonight. By sheer coincidence, Jeff was mentioned in two of our Christmas specials over the holidays here at Stein Online. First up was on the Mark Stein Christmas Show uh, with everyone's favourite Colleen Dana. Here are me and Dana back in the 80s discussing her big Brit hit, Christmas smash. Is this a song you you still enjoy hearing? I do because um, again, I think with every song for everyone, it's maybe not one hundred percent the song. Mm. It's the memories attached to it. That's right. And I remember this song. Um, at the time, my record producer was a man called Jeff Stevens, who wrote that wonderful song Winchester Cathedral. Oh yeah. Um, he was a wonderful writer. And he wrote this song with Roger Greenaway. It's gonna be a cold, cold Christmas without you. Dreaming of those warm, warm, lazy summer days. It's gonna be a long and lonely Christmas without you. Missing you, my darling. Jeff Stevens' Christmas song for Dana. Jeff died on Christmas Eve, and so for Jeff's family, it was a very cold Christmas. It's hard to think of a colder cold Christmas than losing someone on Christmas Eve. It taints the day down through the years. Jeff's relationship with Dana got off to what one would have assumed would be a rocky start because he lost out to her in the Eurovision Song Contest. In 1970, he'd written a song called Knock Knock Who's There, and she cleaned his clock 
uh, as you'll have heard on a previous uh, Mark Stein show, uh, with her song All Kinds of Everything. But Jeff was a professional songwriter, uh, so he didn't hold that against her, and they prospered together in the 70s. I mentioned that I'd briefly worked with Jeff and Don Black on a little review of their song some years back, and I was kind of stunned that he had all these great tunes that he was happy to let gather dust in a trunk in the attic. By the 80s, 90s, a lot of Jeff's contemporaries were like that, living outside of London uh, in what they call uh, the rock broker belt, wealthy suburbs of retired stockbrokers and past it pop stars. And on our New Year special with Don Black, I asked Don about why certain great songwriters are content just to rest on their royalties. You know, I've often said to uh, Jeff Stevens, who wrote There's a Kind of Hush All Over the World and Winchester yeah. Cathedral, when was the last time you picked up a copy of Music Week? which right. is our paper, or variety or anything. They're completely out of it. They're not really interested in the business. They're interested in they're writing their songs. As the years go by, I can sort of understand that. But in a sense, Jeff didn't need new hits because the old hits never went away. This was a top five song in 1964 for Dave Berry, and then all over again three decades later. I know all there is to know about the crying Boy George and a Jeff Stevens number repurposed as the title song of a smash movie from 1992, The Crying Game. Here's another Jeff Stevens song that keeps coming back, but I'm going to stick with the original because I love it. It's a perfect little pop song that exemplifies one of the oldest lessons in pop songwriting, taking a phrase from some other arena of life and hanging a love song on it. All the Golden Age guys did it, Ira Gershwin, when he borrowed a cliché of self-help advertisements. They all laughed when I sat down to play the piano and turned it into one of the Gershwin's best catalogue songs. Frank Lesser, when he was struck by a line used by winning poker players. Boy, I'd like to get you on a slow boat to China. Johnny Mercer, refreshing that weary plane day in, day out. And Jeff Stevens did it too, with Roger Cook and Roger Greenaway and this neat little song, perfect little pop song, complete with long-distance telephone call. Hello? Hi, it's me. I went to see the doctor today, because ever since you've been gone this time, I've had a pain deep down inside. He said there's nothing really wrong with me. I'm just missing my man. So, honey, please come on home as soon as you can. Doctor's orders say there's only one thing for me. Nothing he can do. Cause I love you. Take your 
feel, honey. I know you've got a lot of things on your mind, but oh, I really am missing you so bad. If you're American, you're probably saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not how doctor's orders is meant to sound. And you uh, have a point, uh, Billboard Hot 100-wise. The lady who had a hit with it in the United States did it in a much harder disco sound. But that's not the way Messrs. Stevens, Cook and Greenaway heard the song. Uh, and uh, nor is it the way I hear it. To me, it's a very buoyant pop tune, and I love that original version by a lady called Sunny, whose real name is Heather. Uh, And she was born in Madras. I know that because I met her a long time ago, and I was very thrilled to make her acquaintance. What I love about the song is that, uh, having decided on the title, Doctor's Orders and the Conceit, uh, a woman goes to her general practitioner uh, for lovesickness, The writers just run with it. Says in my condition, loves the best physician. He's prescribed a potion full of warm emotion. That's how you live up to the title. The song has been done and redone all over the world. Hello? Hello, René? C'est moi. Je vais aller voir le docteur aujourd'hui. Depuis que t'es parti, je ne me sens plus comme avant. Il m'a dit que tout allait bien, mais que je manquais d'affection. Chérie, je t'en prie, reviens vite à la maison. You know, uh, the guy saying hello right at the beginning, and then she says hello, René. Well, that was Celine Dion's late husband, René Angelil, cutting himself a name check on a record he produced for his then-wife, Anne René. I, uh, I so love Sonny's version that I don't really bother with any of the others, but I did quite like the anglo Canuck cover by our pal, Canada's great disco diva, Patsy Gallant. Let's go to Patsy on Line 8. Please say you understand how I feel.
Chester Cathedral, there's a kind of hush, the crying game. Semi-detached suburban Mr. James from Anford Man. You won't find another fool like me for the new seekers. Silver Lady for David Soul, and a particular favourite of mine, Doctor's Orders, sung by Trecher Patsy, Patsy Gallant, all written by Jeff Stevens, who took his leave on Christmas Eve. That will do it for today's show. Hope it was just what the doctor ordered. If not, feel free to get a second opinion. On Saturday evening, I'll pick a few favourite moments from our late friend Kathy Shadle's movie columns and do read Laura Rosen-Cohen's heartfelt tribute to Kathy over in Laura's links. Our far too timely tale for our time continues nightly, Uh, Right here at Stein Online, George Orwell's 1984. Do join us for that. Stay safe, stay free. Doctor's orders say there's only one thing for me. of Mark Stone Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.